3 triple Z. 92.3 FM. The following program is in English. Thank you. You're tuned in to L'Chaim, to life, with your host, Morris Klein, who just happens to be my baby brother. Shalom Aleichem, welcome back to L'Chaim, to life, Jewish life and more. Aussie, 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 and keep going Israel. How about the Aussies doing us proud with gold, and there's still plenty to come. Go to Little Pocket Dynamo, Jemima Montag, in the 20k walk on Friday, go Jemima. And how good was it to see the Israeli flag raised for gold with the Hatikva being played. I loved it. Coming up in tonight's Lachaim, I'll be interviewing our very own Mother Teresa, Rosalie Silverstein, raising money for special needs children. Exploring Israel with Effie is a double header tonight, taking us to two must-see places. We have another editorial from AJA Vice President, Alan Friedman. Trust me, stick around for Alan, as well as for David Schulberg's Olympic Mythbuster. First up, Maury's guest is author Dr. Joe Risch with his book, Einstein. You're listening to L'Chaim, Two Life, connecting our Jewish world here on 92.3 FM, 3 Z. Don't move that dial. Dr. Joe Risch, AM, is an ophthalmologist, executive director at the Vision Eye Institute, and is a former president of both the Australian Friends of the Israel Medical Association and the Australian Jewish Medical Federation. He is a board member of the Melbourne Jewish Book Week. Joe also paints and writes and is the author of five published books. Joe, welcome to L'Chaim. Thank you, Murray. Anton Chekhov, writer and playwright, was also a physician, and he famously characterised his dual careers as, in quotes, medicine is my lawful wife and literature is my mistress. When I get tired of one, I spend the night with the other, end of quote. How do you see the interplay between your passions for practising medicine and writing? I would say I have to agree with Chekhov. It is, in fact, the way that I think most um, writers work. They um, need a day job to survive <laughs> and need a, a passion to write in the hours that are left. It is, it is undoubtedly a passion. It certainly um, seems like many hours of labour for little reward until you um, receive a, a nice review or a, a book in your hand with a glossy cover. Do you feel that uh, the medicine isn't enough to display your creative uh, urges? I think that's a very interesting way to put it. Medicine um, can be creative, and in fact, creativity has been um, part of my career, being involved in many aspects of the development of medicine over the last mm. few years. But I think we're all allowed to have the other side of our brain tickled a bit. And uh, there are many um, doctors who have those alternate hobbies that involve um, particularly the arts. There are many uh, painters and many writers. Chekhov is not the only one, and though I'm very um, flattered to be have his name mentioned in our conversation. <laughs> I did look up a list, and it's enormous. And I, I didn't look it up, but I can't imagine there are too many writers who become ophthalmologists later in their life. Well, Robin Cook was an ophthalmologist. Oh, okay. Did he start as a writer, though? No, he started as an ophthalmologist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's the other direction that's more problematic. Uh, your most recent book, Einstein, it's two words, or should I say Einstein as in Yiddish? Well, how do you refer to it? I call it Einstein. Okay. Uh, it was published this year to excellent reviews, and let me say that I thoroughly enjoyed reading it, so thank you very much for that. The core of the novel is the memoir of Yakov Stein, also known as Jack Stein, and Fritz Schnabel, as different circumstances demand. Stein's fantastical story places him at critical moments in 20th century history, interacting with actual people in real events. I don't want to risk inadvertently giving away spoilers, so perhaps you could provide listeners with an outline of the story and some of the events in which Stein is a participant. Perhaps I'll go back a step. The way I write is I often let the characters introduce themselves and when I first met Einstein or Mr. Stein or Jack Stein or Yakov Stein, I was uncertain as to this elderly man who was uh, a bit grumpy, a bit morose, 
and a bit um, playful when he, when he meets a very younger fellow who's come along to interview him. When I met him, I wasn't sure where he was going to lead me. There were certainly influences. I'd read about people who collected Yiddish books, for example, and so I had Mr. Stein surrounded by many Yiddish texts, as one might expect, mm. in somebody who um, wasn't ready to let that, that part of the world go by. I'd also heard of uh, many other stories from the Holocaust, and I was not keen to go through the Holocaust memoir um, mm. direction. One of the reasons for that is both my parents were survivors, and I was very aware of not trying to fictionalise any survivor story. Stein took me in a different direction, and uh, he, he tricked me and he tricked us into um, believing who he was now was who he had been, and um, that's enough to say about where he's taken us. Yep. Though he did um, um, lead me to uh, another story that I knew very well, which was the story of Ernst Leica, who was the yeah. founder of the Leica camera. And I'd heard the story of the Schindler-like um, escape that Leica had arranged for his employees in northern Germany. And um, here was a man who was a social democrat by nature, who was forced to become a Nazi, otherwise his company would have been taken over by the Nazis. And he was a, a very much a man who loved what he was doing, which was creating the best cameras in the world. He understood what was going to happen to his Jewish employees, of which there were many. Mm. So he arranged for their escape, and not just any escape. He provided them with um, documents and visas and tickets to go to the various Leica um, subsidiaries throughout the world. And some went to the UK, some went to America, and some went to South America. This was a remarkable story, a story that was really never told until um, Ernst Leitz himself had passed away and his daughter had passed away because she'd been involved also in um, saving the Jews. And um, when he had saved the employees, he stretched himself out to save any other Jews that came to his um, to, to seek his help. So I incorporated this story into my story of um, Stein. I was probably also uh, influenced somewhat by um, the movie Zelig, Woody <laughs> Allen, a favourite of mine, had had his characters sort of appearing in photographs with other famous people, and I knew that this was probably going to cause some derision. Because, you know, how many coincidences can you have mm. <laughs> for one character? Yeah. But I tried to keep it as subtle as I could. And I used people that I, I knew existed and changed their own stories very little. In other words, I didn't try and make anything happen that didn't happen. Mm. And um, for their own voices, I used um, their own written correspondence or quotations. And so when I have the characters in the book speaking to um, Stein, and they speak in what I hope is um, realistic voices. All those incidents uh, rang true to me as a reader. And uh, I knew very, very little about so that was a fascinating and a critical part of the book. Stein's different names provide him with the guises to survive. In many ways, his story is one of hiding his true identity. On the other hand, there are other characters in the novel who end up in a quest to learn who they truly are. And do you see these opposing elements impacting on how we all live our lives? Well, I think, again, us, us of the next generation have been left with many questions. There was always in my own family an uncle in Uruguay whom I never was able to follow up, another remote relative in Canada. Mm -hmm. And with the way the Holocaust played out and the way that we're now finding stories being uncovered, of people who never knew that brothers and sisters survived, who never knew uncles and aunts survived, mm -hmm. that this new world that we have where genetic studies are, are teaching us so much more. I was led into that, in fact, by my last book, which was a, a biography. And it was a biography of um, my in-law, Makatun, as they might say, <laughs> as they should say. And after that book was published, it was discovered by one of the readers who was a relative in America who did his um, DNA studies that there were other relatives that were very close and mm. were surviving in California. And hundreds of people have been found um, related to uncles and aunts that went from Poland in the 1930s that were all presumed to have died. Yes. And so mm. an entire family has been found subsequent to that book. Yes, uh, it's an incredibly powerful uh, tool. What you've just said sort of brings me around to one of my other questions in that it really saddened me that at the end of the book that the reader knows the fate of Stein's wife and son, and yet Stein dies without knowing what happened to them. 
And I found that really extremely sad. But in the context of the Holocaust and uh, people who went through it, it's it's probably not that unusual. How did you feel when you were devising that uh, aspect of the book? I think it's important not to tie everything together too neatly. Mm. There is a, a tendency to to want to complete all the circles and, um, and allow all the characters to know exactly what happened. Yeah. I think it also fits in with the fact that there was some duplicity in his life and you have to sort of pay a price for that because yeah. he was duplicitous both to his, uh, his biographer and to himself. As a reader, I found that very poignant, but I, I understand what you're saying. The reader may be critical of some of Stein's decisions, but it's easy to be an armchair hero when faced with moral dilemmas set out in a book. Stein's journey involves taking some paths purely for survival, but others for causes that seemed noble to him at the time, but which would have terrible unintended consequences later on. Did your research while creating Stein's story change the way you viewed or perhaps even judged events and participants described in the book? I've always been very careful not to judge. And I was told by somebody who was uh, in the camps with my father, whilst my father and others were not involved in this sort of thing, there were people, as you know, called capos, etc. This fellow made it very clear to me that we could never, never judge what happened in the camps because who was us to judge when the circumstances were impossible? And I think that many of the circumstances people found themselves in were truly impossible. Decisions were made that were um, beyond comprehension. Mm. And I, I felt that um, Stein's decisions were, were not that um, difficult for him to make. I mean, there was a time when he leaves his son, and we, we all understand his poignancy after that. But at the time, he was uncertain as to the status of his wife. He had nowhere to go. Um, it was his only escape, and he knew where the world was heading. We also know that he may not have been whom he said he was when he told us that. <laughs> That's true, too. Joe, I'm sorry we've run out of time, but sincere thanks for appearing on Lachayan to discuss your novel, Ein Stein. I recommend our listeners purchase a copy and read this compelling and thought-provoking book. And let me add that all proceeds from the sales of Joe's paintings and books are donated to charity. Joe, I hope we can get you back in the not-too-distant future to discuss your passion for painting. So thank you very much. Ari, thank you very much, and thank you very much for the time you've given to, to this.
I'm Ernie Singer, and this is your daily newscast from Israel News Talk Radio. Foreign Minister Yair Lapid and Defense Minister Benny Gantz are holding a joint security briefing for ambassadors on Wednesday, including intelligence materials proving that Iran is behind last week's drone attack on an Israeli-managed oil tanker near Oman, which took the lives of British and Romanian crew members. Citing Monday reports by Kuwaiti media, Israel National News says that Iran has transferred air defense systems near the Boucher nuclear power plant, among other moves under an alert, in anticipation of a military response. Iran denied involvement during Monday meetings with diplomats from the two countries and threatened to respond to any action taken against it. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson said on Monday that the Tehran government should face the consequences, and London's Daily Mirror reported British commanders are drawing up plans for a joint UK-United States Special Forces capture-or-kill mission against an Iran-backed terror team. Israeli intelligence has pinpointed the area where the drone was launched and reinforced British Special Forces are in the region. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken vowed a collective response on Monday. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki told reporters on Monday that Israel is going to make its own decisions as a sovereign country and that the Iranian attack would not affect nuclear negotiations, although she added, Our view is that every single challenge and threat we face from Iran would be made more pronounced and dangerous by an unconstrained nuclear program. The Iranian threat was one of the strategic challenges discussed by the American and Israeli national security advisors ahead of Prime Minister Naftali Bennett's trip to Washington. Agence France Press reports the North Atlantic Treaty Organization and the European Union have condemned the attack on the ship, and Reuters reports Qatar has done so too, not citing Iran. Israel slammed the EU on Monday for its decision to send a representative to Iranian President Ebrahim Raisi's swearing-in ceremony on Tuesday, saying it is puzzling and a demonstration of poor judgment against the backdrop of the attack. A foreign ministry statement also cited Raisi's role in the deaths of thousands of Iranian dissidents during the early days of the Islamic Republic. The Jerusalem Post says a report published on Monday by the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change indicates the role of Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps will expand under Raisi despite internal competition. Citing the official state Fars news agency, the Times of Israel reports Monday saw outgoing President Hassan Rouhani acknowledge the Mossad intelligence agency's retrieval of a huge trove of the Islamic Republic's nuclear files from a secret warehouse outside Tehran. He told a government meeting that the secrets prompted former U.S. President Donald Trump to leave the 2015 nuclear agreement, stressing that he was not commenting on whether the documents stolen in 2018 had been authentic. A court has imposed a gag order on the investigation of a Monday afternoon stabbing in Petak Tikva in which a man was seriously wounded. It was reported earlier that the Shabak Israel Security Agency was involved in the probe as a terror attack. Palestinian Authority terrorist Mutasir Shalabi, who holds American citizenship, pled guilty on Tuesday to the murder of Yehuda Goeta three months ago in a drive-by shooting at the Tabuak Junction in Samaria. He was also convicted for the attempted murder of other people at the site, weapons charges, and obstruction of justice. Arut Sheva reports stones were thrown through the windows of a bus on Monday evening near Jerusalem's Damascus Gate. A man was wounded. The military announced on Monday that it is splitting the rocket alert zones in some cities, allowing citizens to more accurately know if they need to seek shelter or not. The move is a result of lessons learned during May's 11-day war with Gaza terror groups. Tuesday saw ministers approve the addition of 18 more countries to the list from which returnees will require seven days of isolation as of Friday under a severe travel warning as Israel battles the coronavirus. The decision must be approved by the relevant Knesset committees, and other measures were under consideration. The Jerusalem Post reported 3,800 new cases in the previous 24 hours, an infection rate of 3.78%, the highest since the beginning of March. The 15 people who died since Monday morning made for the highest daily toll in four months. Prime Minister Bennett spoke of painful measures because of the rising statistics, as well as an expansion of the third vaccine program currently available to those over age 60. While hoping to see a halt in the increases, said hope was not a working plan. Enforcement of existing mask rules in the Green Pass resumed Monday evening. Channel 12 television reports Sheba Medical Center's coronavirus intensive care unit was reopened on Tuesday, with two patients in serious and critical condition respectively, the latter having been vaccinated. This has been Ernie Singer at Israel News Talk Radio. The news from Israel is courtesy of INTR, Israel News Talk Radio. Listen online to more straight talk from Israel at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. If you're driving along Glen Huntley Road, 1226 Glen Huntley Road, Glen Huntley, and 484 Glen Huntley Road, Elstonwick, there are two posh op shops selling a variety of high-quality pre-loved merchandise, 
with all the net proceeds going towards the Jewish Children's Aid Society. Joining us tonight on Lachaim is the tireless energy force behind the posh op shops, Rosalie Silverstein. Rosalie, welcome to Lachaim, to life, Jewish life and more. Thank you. Rosalie, you and I have spoken many times on the radio about the posh op shops. We have a new Lachaim audience. What is the Jewish Children's Aid Society all about? And what are the posh op shops all about? Posh op shops have been going for 25 years now and they pay for 280 special needs children to have special care integration in every Jewish day school in Melbourne. So we at the moment are paying for 110 integration aides to share their time between 280 special children in every Jewish day school. It's a pretty good cause. Amazing. And comes under the umbrella of the Jewish Children's Aid Society, which I believe is the oldest Jewish charity in Australia. It used to be the Orphans and Children's Aid Society, which was the Francis Bartman Homes were set up and they used to pay for children who'd families that had come from Europe or orphan children. And that's what Francis Bartman did. And that's what our society did for a long time. When I was asked to come onto the board of the Melbourne Jewish Orphans and Children's Aid Society, I was given the job of cleaning out those houses, which was pretty sad because really there was not any more orphans left from Europe. And things had changed. So the Melbourne Jewish Orphan Society began paying for special children. You might remember uh, the headmaster of Mount Scopus College, Dr. Lorch. Dr. Lorch came from America and he brought this program with him of paying for special children. And when I started 25 years ago, there was about 30 children. Today, as I said, we've got 280 and we could have a lot more, but it's just to do with our funding, that's all. You started with one little small shop in Glen Huntley. Yes, you've now expanded. Expanded, well, you expanded to a much larger store down at 1226 Glen Huntley Road on the corner of Grange Road. I'm sure everyone in the community is familiar with that uh, location. And in recent times, uh, off to 484 Glen Huntley Road, Elstonwick, which is a huge store, quite a large store. I was in retail all my life, and Elstonwick is a large store. You've got a huge, a huge amount of donated merchandise there. Glen Huntley is also, you know, it's a smaller store, but still a, a large size store. Take us through some of the product that you have there that people mm. generously donate. I can't keep up with it. Every time I'm there, it's a hive of activity in the store itself, out the back in the storage area. Take us through the store itself. Well, before I get to that, I will say to you that there is a pop-up shop for Weezo, but basically we are the only Jewish op shop in Melbourne today. So the support we've got out there is quite amazing from the Jewish community and the non-Jewish community. People want to support us because I feel that they know that our money goes in the right direction. I mean, I run it with the help of Jason and I have never, yes, and he's taken quite a big load off me today, but I have never taken or bought had anything from this store unless I pay for it. And that's quite rare, I would think, because in most op shops today, people are paid to run because it's a massive, massive job. We get everything in these shops. We're we're very, very lucky. Today, they've gone to a very famous lady's home who passed away in her late 90s. She was a socialite in Melbourne. I can't mention her name. But the goods that we will be getting, all brand. She was a magnificently dressed lady and I am so lucky. I'm friendly with her daughter and her daughter has always said, Rose Lee, because her mother's been sick for a long time and the goods all go to the posh shop shop. So we have three cars or truck picking up the goods today because there's so much of it. But we get everything. We get house loads. 
we get silver, we get a lot of jewellery, we get beautiful clothes brands. I was just at the back of the shop before and a lady came in and gave me two bags of goods. They're all like a lot of them have got labels on them and they've got new labels as well. They haven't been used. Linen, beautiful cashmere cardigans, things that cost so much money when you go into Myers or David Jones. Not that I'm against retail because I'm all for it, but we are so fortunate. We get wonderful dinner sets. We get beautiful china. We get so much beautiful paintings. We get a lot of artwork, very good furniture. We're very fussy with the furniture we take now because we just don't have the space. Our shops are so full. You know, it's such a wonderful cause and I find people want to support it. If I say to people, I'm terribly sorry, but we haven't got room, they say, oh, well, when can we give it to you? And people in our community and the wider community are so generous, so very generous. Now, you can't run these two shops and this great little charity without the efforts of volunteers. You're always looking for volunteers. If people got a few hours or a day or a few days that pop down to the store, you'll welcome them with open arms. Absolutely. We love volunteers. It's a warm place to work. We've got the back as where it's very friendly. We we welcome you with open arms. And it doesn't matter if you've got an hour to spare. It doesn't matter if you've got two hours to spare. We don't get all that many gentlemen in our shop. I don't know why, because men do make, as we can see with yourselves, make great volunteers, but we don't get that many. We do love volunteers because this is a massive project. It's massive. And we've got to make an enormous amount of money. Last year we paid six hundred and fifty thousand for our children. And we've got to make more this year. That is amazing. Now, Rosalie, 650000 I know you have a huge budget. As you said, you're looking after uh, 280 special needs children. COVID-19 has had a huge impact on your business and other charities. People don't realise the impact that COVID has had on charities, and it's left a big hole in your bottom line. And every time there is a lockdown, that hurts your bottom line. There's no dollars coming in. By the way, you also accept donations, you accept cash donations, but COVID's had a a huge impact on your uh, your charity in the last year and a half, has it not? It has. You're quite right. Within the community, it's quite amazing because things are bad and people do need help. People are very generous and we could never have got through the last year without financial donation. The Pratt Foundation seem to come to the party every year and on their back. They're wonderful supporters of ours and I do have anonymous donors, whatever. But it's been massive. I mean, don't forget last year we were closed for, say, five months or more. And our children, what you've got to understand is whether we're open or shut, Special needs children are paid for. You see, whether they're at school or at home, the majority of them have carers. They have integration aids and so we have to pay the money with or without the schools open. So it's a massive project. And, you know, when I started this, you've got to remember, a lot of charities go out to the public and ask for money. I never did that. I rolled my sleeves up with the help of other people and we've managed to make a lot of money ourselves for this project. The community should really support us because we'd probably be one of the only projects in the whole of Melbourne where we have made our own money. Of course, we rely on the community to give us the goods. We can't do it. This shop is only as good as the items in the shop and the customers that come in and buy. And you've got a loyal following of customers as well. Rosalie, you've got to bring this to a close. People want to volunteer, they should call you on 0438 368 260 or your son Jason 0402 317 0200 and they can follow you on Facebook. 
That's true. And thank you to both of you, Morris and George, for being such terrific supporters of the Posh Op Shop. Thank you so much for that. It means so much. You're both wonderful people and I so appreciate you, you know, your input and your help. That's much appreciated as well, Rosalie. Rosalie Silverstein, our little Jewish mother, Teresa <laughs> Angel, thank you again for joining us on Lachaim to Life. Keep up your great work. Yasha Koyach to you and the Posh Op team. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Guess what? Both Rosalie and I forgot to mention that there is a big, big sale happening right now at both the Posh Op shops. 50% off all winter clothing, with security tags. That's 50% off all winter clothing with security tags. So head on down to the Posh Op shops. You'll be supporting a great cause, children with special needs. Now, let's have a listen to Yiddish girl Barbara Streisand. You're tuned into Lachaim on 92.3 FM, 3 triple Z. Stay with us. Father has a business, strictly second-hand Everything from toothpicks to a baby grand Stuff in our apartment came from father's store Even clothes I'm wearing, someone wore before It's no wonder that I feel abused Get a thing that ain't been used I'm wearing second-hand hats Second-hand clothes That's why they call me Second-hand rose Even our piano in the park Israel with Effie, Masada, Caesarea, Jerusalem. For many, these places are no more than the name of a city or national park. However, for others, these places are far more than just names of a place on a map. These sites are some of the many hidden gems which exemplify and are an integral part of our Jewish history, heritage and culture. Allow me to take you on a journey back into time and see history unfold before your eyes. Tread on the land where ancient mighty empires once existed and ruled and walk in the footsteps of the biblical figures from the Old and New Testament in order to hear, feel, touch and taste this magical land of Eretz Israel. Explore Israel with Effie for an unforgettable experience. Shalom, shalom, Boker Tov Moshe from Efi here in Eretz Israel as we once again explore Israel with Efi on 92.3 FM 3 Triple Z Lechaim. Good to have you back, mate. Efi, um, how good was it to hear the Hatikva at the Olympics? 
Um, no, that was yes, awesome. That was fantastic. Absolutely. We've waited a long, a long, long time for a gold medal and the Atikva and the flag being raised. And all of a sudden, this young gymnast rocks up and gives the performance of a lifetime. And uh, really, uh, it went viral here, obviously, in Israel. A lot of pride, a lot of satisfaction. And uh, we hope still for results from the rhythmic gymnasts who have a chance at a medal. Easily, with Noy Ashram. She's top-notch. Terrific. And we've got somebody in the equestrian still. Uh, yes, listen, uh, Israel tries its best. Perhaps it's not the right formula because smaller countries usually concentrate on a smaller number of sports where they have strength in and not try and broaden the spectrum and spend resources on not questionable, but I doubt whether the equestrian is going to win a medal when you look at the top countries of Australia, England, Germany, America. I doubt it. Yeah. Anyway, they've got plenty of other events. Where are you taking us today? Right. Okay, guys, let's go explore Israel with Effie. And today we're next to Ashkelon, 40 kilometers south of Tel Aviv, and we're continuing on from Ashkelon towards Kibbutz Yad Mordechai. Now, Kibbutz Yad Mordechai has a phenomenal history, and we're talking here about a battle site reconstruction of 1948. In 1948, Egyptian army units attacked Yad Mordechai. The defending forces withstood the advances for five days and then withdrew. The delaying action allowed the Israeli forces in the north to organize and counterattack. Six months later, the kibbutz was retaken and the renovation commenced. The kibbutz has on display a model of the battle that took part where the engagement happened, replete with model soldiers, model vehicles and weaponry. The water tower, pockmarked by shell fire, had become a symbolic side recalling the battle during the War of Independence. Beside the destroyed water tower is a memorial to Mordechai Anilevich, commander of the Jewish resistance fires in the Warsaw Ghetto and after whom the kibbutz is named. Today, the site has been declared a national park. It also has a Holocaust Heritage Museum containing photographs and models of a Jewish shtetl, descriptions of life and events during the period of the Holocaust and the revolt in Europe, the illegal immigration and the pioneer settlements. A great place to visit. You go there, that can take care of an hour, an hour and a half of the kids that can run around in their trenches. And from there, we get back in the car. We turn east or left if we were coming down from north to south, travel 36 minutes and we hit the Eshkol National Park. Now, this Eshkol National Park is part of the Besol's stream and from the point where Nachal Beersheva enters it up to the Gaza Strip, a nature reserve. But this is also known as the Besol Park. The location received the status of a national reserve, not only for its natural landscape and many antiquities, but also to give legal section for the protection of its banks, which are so sensitive to damage. But one of the heights in the park is a thing called Chirbet Shahala, Shahala Ruins. On the northern area of the park, now during World War I, the Australian soldiers who were engaging the Turkish forces in the vicinity uncovered a magnificent mosaic floor from the remains of a Byzantine church. We're looking at 1,600 years ago. Now, this mosaic is where was removed by the soldiers to Canberra and is currently located at the War Museum down there. And it appears on a wall Besides a monument towards the unknown soldier. Phenomenal, unbelievable stuff. And when you look at the pictures of it, look it up online. Outstanding mosaic. Now, in the bed of the Nachal of the stream, there are two trails, one marked green, one marked black. And in the southern section of the green trail, you can cross the Nachal along a long suspension bridge, the only one of its kind. So what do we have here at this park? You've got the old railway bridge. Part of the railway tracks are the sole remains of the British construction effort during World War I. The British Army under General Allenby, who came from Egypt to Palestine via the Sinai Desert, sought to gain control over the Gaza City by staging an assault from this area. The bridge and track were on a line from Beersheba to Rafiach on the Mediterranean coast. There's a place called Tel Sharochun, a little hillock, one of the many antiquity sites. And that was the place where it is listed in the cities of Shimeon in the book of Joshua and important finds from the period of the Philistine settlements that were found here. And as we said in the opening stages of the Israel War of Independence, this site served as a base for the Egyptian military incursion before the IDF overcame the Egyptian position in Operation Asaf. You also have Be'er Revuva, a well. At the beginning of the 20th century, on the initiative of the Turks, a village was established for the Tarabin Bedouin tribe. In order to encourage the sedentary life of the Bedouin, 12 wells were dug in the area and several trees were planted. 
in the center of the village called Rueba was a well, which was later restored during the period of the British Mandate, and the first pioneers, Kibbutz Gvulot, right next to it, who arrived in 1943, purchased their drinking water from the well. There's a massive suspension bridge, 80 meters long, over a large, deep pool of water above the Nachal Channel. This Tseilim Tower can be reached via the bridge. From there, you've got a magnificent view of Nachal Basol, the gullies and the canyon and its rocky terrain. But you also have Chilbet Fatish, another ruin. And this is a ruin of the Byzantine village appearing on the 6th century Madabah map, which is phenomenal. That's in Jordan, but it was a 6th century depiction of how this region looked 1,400 years ago. And this is apparently the site of Fatish, mentioned in the list of towns conquered by the Egyptian pharaoh King Shishak. The remains of structures, systems, and the Ottoman fortress that's there. So, guys, what do you need more than that when you can really see history come to life of these two places, both modern history, 1948, Yad and then Nachal Basol, phenomenal place, little channels for the kiddies to paddle into the water safely, you know, a couple of inches uh, deep, shade, picnic tables, you name it, it's got it. So don't think twice. Two sites, all within half an hour of one another, just south of Ashkelon. You do yourselves a favor and go there. That's all from me, from Effie, for this week. Until next week, when we once again explore Israel with Effie on 92.3 FM, 3 Triple Z Lachaim. Fantastic, Effie. Effie, I've been to Yad Mordechai and I've got some photos of standing at that battle scene holding a couple of uh, antique machine guns. It's an amazing setting. It is well, well worth a visit. And you can see Gaza from Yad Mordechai as well. On the top of the tell, you can glimpse uh, the outskirts of Gaza. Correct. That statue of uh, Mordechai Angelevich is is amazing. Great hero, great role model for the Jewish people, never to give up. And even against all odds, put your life on the line. But a great man. Terrific, terrific. Thanks, mate. See you again Okay, all the best. Guys, take care. Till next week, take care of yourselves. Shalom, shalom. All the best. Bye from Effie here in Eretz Yisrael. And a few more medals for Israel. Let's hope. See you, mate. Now for AJA Vice President Alan Friedman, what constitutes anti-Semitism? Julian Burnside QC, high-profile barrister and failed Greens candidate, made the headlines recently as one of those people who like to say words to the effect of, I am not anti-Semitic, I am just critical of Israel. Of course, this all blew up when Burnside tweeted that, quote, Israel's treatment of Palestinians looks horribly like the German treatment of the Jews during the Holocaust. This was hugely offensive on many levels. There is one important reason why I consider Burnside's tweet to be anti-Semitic, and one other reason why it demonstrates an astonishing lack of insight into the way the world works. Firstly, I have spoken about the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism before, but it warrants expanding on now because in the modern world that we live in, it is probably the best way to explain why appalling criticism of Israel can be considered anti-Semitic. Now, whilst there have been a lot of definitions of anti-Semitism in the past, This one is different in that in addition to the couple of sentences that constitutes the definition, it also has 11 additional explanatory notes that expand on and clarify what the authors of the definition intended to convey. This is the modern way of doing things, and it happens frequently with government agencies. Whenever a law or some regulations are drafted, there are explanatory notes added that outline exactly how the original statement is to be interpreted. So in this case, these notes provide specific examples of how unjust and unreasonable treatment of Israel that would not be applied to any other country can indeed be regarded as anti-Semitism. And on this basis, Burnside's tweet does exactly what the IHRA defines as anti-Semitism, that is, equating a contemporary Israeli policy with the Nazis. And furthermore, this is now the third time in the last few years he has done this, so he can't, in all honesty, claim it was an unintended slip-up. 
The second reason why Burnside's tweet was so insulting is this. In preparing a newspaper article for The Australian, columnist Gerard Henderson sent a message to Burnside asking if he has ever visited Israel and or Gaza, if he has travelled to the area, and whether he had made contact with the Palestinian Authority in Ramallah. Burnside replied, and take notice as this admission is the most outrageous part of the story, he said, quote, No, I haven't visited Israel or Gaza, but I watch the ABC and SBS News. The simple fact is that Israelis kill a lot of Palestinians. Certainly the numbers are nowhere near the number of Jews killed during the Holocaust, but the reasons are substantially the same. End quote. This is simply astounding. Here is a man with two university degrees who thinks it is okay to make the most contemptible comments about Israel, and he hasn't even been there. And worse, he gets his information from the ABC and SBS in the naive belief that these two media outlets are respectable, fair, and balanced on Israel. Burnside's tweet was so egregious that even the Greens were embarrassed by it, and that's saying something. They backpedalled so fast that even leader Adam Bant distanced himself from Burnside's tweet. And the Greens themselves have plenty of form for not being fair and objective on Israel. I look at all of this and ask myself, is Burnside anti-Semitic or just a harsh critic of Israel? I have my personal views, but what do you think? This is Alan Friedman for the Australian Jewish Association. I say if it quacks like a duck, it's an anti-Semitic duck. Here's David Schulberg with his Olympics Mythbuster. Welcome to the, the Mythbusters. Just the facts, man. You were mentioning that two of the Olympians stood aside and said that they wouldn't participate against Israel. That's making a stance, a pretty good stance. What happened there? First, there was the Algerian judo competitor. He said he would not compete. And, you know, and then, and then the recent, I think it was yesterday, Sudanese, uh, also a judo competitor, stood up and said he wouldn't compete. And they pay a heavy personal price. And I think both of these, I did martial arts my whole life. You know, I, I think these guys demonstrated what real martial arts is about. It's putting principle first. And, and that's what they did. They showed that they're great martial artists and that martial arts are about principle. And so they stood up and they said, we won't compete with these people. We want to legitimize and recognize the state of Israel. I mean, it's enormous. I mean, they've, they've practiced and studied and trained their entire life for this moment. Oh, yeah. To be in the Olympics. I mean, can you imagine? No, it's, it's incredible. And their, their moral compass is far greater than their, their um, willingness to win. It's fantastic. And that's exactly how it should be. The Tokyo Olympic Games are taking place as we speak, and the Israel bashers who present the Palestine Remembered program on 3CR Community Radio had Miko Pellet as their guest this week. Anti-Israel activist Miko Pellet, the son of an Israeli general who fought in the Six-Day War, is a vocal supporter of BDS. The show's main host, Nasser Mashni, is constantly on the hunt for self-hating Jews like Pellet thinking that getting Jews in particular to criticise and damn Israel is a good tactic. Unfortunately for Mashni and Pella, they are way off the mark with their account of two judokas who pulled out of their events at the Olympics because they refused to compete against Israelis. Since then, a Saudi athlete bucked the trend by showing up to compete against her Israeli foe and was praised by the International Judo Federation. Tahani Al-Katani faced Israel's Raz Hershko in the women's over 78 kilo division Friday and lost by Ippon. Her participation was considered in doubt, but the head of the Saudi Arabian Olympic Committee confirmed she would take part in the bout. The International Judo Federation said, With what happened today at the Nippon Budokan, once again Judko makes history and helps to build a better world where respect is the core value of human relations. Saudi Arabia proves that through sport, we can go beyond differences and make sport a force to unite the world. Last April, the International Judo Federation suspended Iran for four years 
after that nation told Saeed Molai to skip a match against an Israeli opponent at the 2019 World Championships. Molai defected to Mongolia and produced a silver medal in the 81 kilo weight class in Tokyo. It was the first Olympic medal for Molai two years after he left his native Iran, revealing that his national team coaches had ordered him to lose in the semi-finals of the 2019 World Championships in Tokyo to avoid facing Israel's Sagi Muki in the final. Molai subsequently moved to Germany and then acquired Mongolian citizenship. Molai told the Israeli sports TV channel that he was thankful for the support he's received from Israel over the years. He told the network, Thank you to Israel for the good energy. This medal is dedicated also to Israel. I hope the Israelis are happy with this win. The story of the unlikely friendship between Molai and Muki is being developed for television by Israel's Tadmor Entertainment and MGM. There you have it. The BDS movement, supported by the likes of Israelophobe Miko Peled, promotes nothing but hatred for Israel, and these guys from the Palestine Remembered Program seriously need to examine their moral compasses, because they are way off beam. This Mythbuster was by David Schulberg, presenter of the Israel Connection, with an X located on YouTube, and convener of the website JMedia Online, jmedia.online, which provides news from media sources around Australia of potential interest to the Jewish community. Now for headlines from tomorrow's Australian Jewish News, the voice of Australia's Jewish community. Jewish schools in crisis. Burnside slammed, apology rejected. Mass resignation of Caulfield Shul Board. Premier reopens Beth Weitzman. Calls to cut unrefunding. Latest Lytha hearing. Perth rabbi appointed to Supreme Court. Israel, UK and US threaten Iran over ship attack. Frosty reception for courts, Sheikh Jarrah compromise. Lipstadt tipped as Biden's anti-Semitism czar. To read more coverage of local, federal and international news, opinion, arts, lifestyle and sport, pick up your copy of the Australian Jewish News from newsagents and supermarkets in southeast of Melbourne or for weekly home delivery, subscribe at subscribe.jewishnews.net.au That's it for another Chocolate Block Lachaim. Tune in next week when our special guest will be Nitsana Dashan Leitner with her Shurat Hadin, bankrupting terrorism one lawsuit at a time. Right, you'll find in about 15 minutes to half an hour a recording of tonight's Lachaim program at 3zzz.com.au. Click on the down arrow in the Listen to a Show square and scroll down to the Jewish group. You'll find it there. Links to YouTube recordings of tonight's interviews will be posted to the Lachaim and Morris Klein Facebook pages tomorrow. Please check out the other two programs that make up the Jewish group here at 3ZZZ. The Hebrew Hour, Shabbat Shalom, 3pm on Friday, and the Yiddish Hour, 11am on Sunday. If you'd like to contact us here at Lechaim, our email is lchaim3zzz at gmail.com. For only $16, please consider becoming a member of the Jewish group here at 3ZZZ. And for seniors, it's just $11. Again, click on 3zzz.com.au. Many thanks again to Team Lachaim, Dr. George Banky, the executive producer, Dr. Mori Frankel, and Jeff Deegan. We're going out tonight with the cast from Fiddler on the Roof with their God Bless America in Yiddish. Lachaim, to life. I'm Yisrael Chai, and peace. Madrich sein, 
A Jewish immigrant named Israel Baleen landed at Ellis Island. 25 years later, Irving Berlin, whose first languages were Russian and Yiddish, penned God Bless America as a message of peace. Our Mishpocha. The cast of Fiddler on the Roof in Yiddish shares with you Berlin's solemn prayer translated into his native tongue as we celebrate the beauty and ideals of our home and pray for its future. Thank <laughs> you.